Welcome to the ARC Experience, featuring the stories of self-advocates with disabilities and their families from around Wisconsin. Be inspired. Take action. And now for today's episode. Welcome to the ARC Experience Podcast. I'm your host, Lisa Pugh of the ARC Wisconsin. And today we are joined by someone who's been around for a lot of Wisconsin's disability history. Now, not that he's old or anything, Lynn Breedlove. Welcome to Lynn. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me and I appreciate you saying I'm not old. <laughs> Just for our listeners who don't know Lynn, he represented Wisconsin's disability rights movement in the halls of Congress and in the state capitol when he served for 31 years as the executive director of Disability Rights Wisconsin. And since his retirement in 2011, he's been keeping pretty busy. He has been both a national and international consultant on disability and elder issues, focusing most recently on the promotion of self-direction. If you know Lynn, you know he's a big thinker, helping people remember both our dark history of disability rights here in Wisconsin, but also pushing us forward into the future. You know, Lynn, I know we really could talk about many things, but one thing you said you wanted to talk about really was kind of COVID-19 and how not only has it turned a lot of people with disabilities lives upside down, but how it might have some you know, result in some changes in our system. So I wanted to ask you, start out by asking you, what are the, some of the biggest changes you see that have come about as because of COVID-19? Yeah, I mean, I think we don't know exactly when the pandemic's going to end and when we can get back to something like normal life, but I don't think it's too soon to start thinking about what impact has this all had on us and what we might learn from it, what we might do differently in the future. Um, right now, in talking to some of the people with disabilities that I know, I mean, obviously, a lot of people are feeling socially isolated. Uh, I think some people that's boring, some people are depressed by that. Uh, so there's kind of a challenge to how to keep your life interesting. Uh, obviously, some people have had their jobs suspended. I mean, hopefully, a lot of those people will get back to work at some point, although. There may be some jobs where there's a question about whether that job will exist after the pandemic. Hopefully most people won't have to face that. Oh, there's the risk of contracting the virus. You know, that's something that affects people with disabilities, their families, their home care workers. Uh, that's an issue. Uh, people are trying to learn these rules about social distance and wear your mask and wash your hands. And all of us are challenged by that, including some people with disabilities. And I think, you know, anxiety has increased for a lot of people. And some people that may actually mean they need some mental health services they didn't need before, or they need more mental health services. Uh, I've also heard, you know, some examples of uh, worker shortages. Uh, a good friend of mine who lives in the Fox Valley, three of her home care workers, all three of them were college students. Uh, when COVID hit, they all went home to live with their parents. And, um, said, I can't come in and help you anymore. So all of a sudden she went from three workers to zero workers within about a week. She had to move back in with her mom and dad, you know, and she's in her thirties living pretty independently. And that's a pretty big uh, jolt for her. Right. You know, it's hard not to focus on 
all of the bad news with COVID-19 and all of the ways that our lives really have um, turned in a negative direction, but do you happen to see any opportunities, any positive results that could stick with us from the pandemic? Yeah, uh, I think some people have decided, hey, I'm gonna have to be a little bit more independent now. Uh, maybe I lost some of my home care worker hours. I'm gonna have to figure out how I'm gonna carry on without that. Um, some people have had to learn how to get their support remotely. You know, I think some people who are getting help with cooking and menu planning face-to-face -face from a, a worker that came into their apartment. Now some of that stuff's over the phone or with FaceTime or Zoom. Uh, that's probably a good thing because now these technologies exist and when people start using them more, maybe they'll use them in the future. Uh, maybe people realize like smartphones and laptops and iPads can actually be a vehicle for getting guidance and support and getting social interaction. So I'm hoping some of those skills that people have been forced to develop now, they're actually gonna be useful to them later. You know, one of the things I've been thinking about is how if you live in rural Wisconsin, you maybe don't have a lot of choices or opportunities to take classes or maybe participate in learning opportunities or even really socialize with many other people. And technology kind of bridges those gaps in some ways. Yeah, I mean, it's now like, so many more things you can learn online, so many more courses. There's all kinds of useful YouTubes. You know, it's amazing, you know, like you wanna learn how to cook a meatloaf? Well, you punch that into YouTube and there's probably five little videos that'll show you how to do it. And it might show you just as well as the home care worker you had three months ago who's not coming to your house anymore. And I think, you know, some day services providers in Wisconsin, because they aren't having people come to their facility anymore, are now putting a lot of their lessons and activities online. So um, people with disabilities can really access that information with maybe even some of the same direct care worker instructors that, that they were used to before. So I think lots of good opportunities for people to access new, new um, learning. Yep, I agree. You know, one other thing I was thinking about is um, remote support technology, you know, kind of that overnight technology that allows people to be more independent and how um, we're, we're hopefully seeing that, you know, maybe not for great reasons, but the pandemic is where you don't want maybe as many workers coming in and out of your house. Um, using technology can also help with that as well. Yeah, and I actually think you know, advocates need to be talking more about that because some people have lost workers, lost hours of workers, and they don't even know that remote monitoring might be an alternative for them or their families don't even know. So they're just kind of like struggling to get by without the support. And in fact, there's a technology that might replace the support they lost or approximate it in some way. So I really feel like that's something that we have to promote more. And, you know, I've had some discussions with one of the major remote monitoring agencies and, you know, they're not getting the big influx of calls that I would have expected they were getting right now. Uh, Cause I know the worker shortages are getting worse and I would think there'd be more interest. And I just don't know that family care, care managers or IRIS consultants 
are bringing this up and, and mentioning it to people. And I think it's unfortunate that they're not. Yeah, definitely many opportunities to grow in that area. I, I want to switch gears a little bit. You know, I think we've learned a lot during the pandemic about the risks for people who live in what are referred to as congregate settings. So places where there are a lot of people living together like nursing homes and maybe um, some you know, community-based residential facilities. A lot of people have gotten sick and even died in those facilities. I guess I'm curious what you think this means for the future of home and community-based services. Do you think that will um, change the way people think about the safety in different types of settings? You know, there has been a gradual trend towards more individualized community-based services, whether that's where people live, where they spend their day, what kind of work they're doing. I'm hoping this accelerates that and actually gives people one more reason to see that that would be a positive direction to go. And, you know, a lot of people have said, you know, COVID is obviously a very contagious illness, but there may be other viruses and other things in the future that we're going to have to be more careful about as a society. And if so, I think families and people with disabilities should realize, you know, nursing homes and big sheltered workshops and uh, eight, 10, 12 person residential programs there's more risk of contracting these illnesses and there's more need for all these protective protocols and you know practices and i'm just hoping it gives one more piece of momentum towards more normalized individualized stuff that is more like the life that you know that the rest of us live you know most of us want to live in regular apartment buildings or single family homes and I think that's what most people with disabilities want too. Absolutely. Yeah. It'll be interesting to see how kind of the permanent way services are offered change after we kind of get through the pandemic um, season. Um, you know, you've, you've lived through lots of state budgets in your career. And this fall, we um, kind of start that process again with the governor considering what he wants to put in his budget. And then in early 2021 is when the whole kind of legislative debate starts on the state budget. But this time we know that we're gonna be kind of in the middle of this severe recession and a slump in the economy. And typically that means you know, we don't have a lot of state revenues. And I think that you and I have both seen that that means, you know, programs for people with disabilities often suffer. Do you have any reflections on that or any advice for advocates? Yeah, absolutely. I think you're right. Even though nobody's formally come out and said, oh, we're gonna be cutting Medicaid in the next biennial budget. Most of us who've been around for a while can see the handwriting on the wall. When state revenues are down, Medicaid's always on the list of things that maybe are gonna to have to be cut. And I don't think that people with disabilities and families and advocates should just take that laying down. I mean, I think we should be actively saying uh, these services are vital services for people's lives and they absolutely have to be protected. And you know, some of that message I think needs to get to Governor Evers uh, before the budget comes out. I mean, I think he needs to hear from people that these Medicaid funded programs took 
decades to create. Uh, Wisconsin's very proud of ending waiting lists and we don't wanna go back to 20 or 30 years ago. Uh, so hopefully we can convince the governor to start out with a good budget. And then when we get into the legislature, we're gonna to have to defend that for sure. Uh, so people that have not been politically active really ought to be connecting with their legislators, um, being more vocal, getting into the game because we're gonna need some pretty loud voices to defend Medicaid against what is pretty likely to be you know, some efforts to, to cut it. Yeah, it kind of goes back to that motto that budgets really are about priorities. It's not always about how much money there is to spend, it's how you prioritize spending what you have, right? Well, the other motto is the one about if you don't have a seat at the table, you'll probably be on the menu. So uh, we've been there before. That's true. Hey, so Lynn, looking into your crystal ball, so after um, we have a vaccine for COVID-19 and life is a little safer again, what do you think that disability advocates should focus on? What do you think our priorities should be? Well, you know, you're a co-chair of the Governor's Caregiver Task Force. I really think that this crisis has pointed out how important and how essential home care workers are. And if people didn't realize it before, I hope they realize it now. And you know, those workers that go into people's homes every day and provide personal care, you know, they're putting themselves in a position where they could contract the virus. And you know, thank goodness they're still showing up and going into people's homes and still doing that work. Um, I was really excited to see that you know senator warren and ro Khanna unveiled their essential workers bill of rights in congress now i don't know what chance that has in this congress right now but in november we may have a different congress um, after the election and if so i really think advocates ought to get behind initiatives like this you know maybe there'll be something similar in wisconsin to get behind but you know, you look at that Bill of Rights, it talks about health and safety protections for workers. It talks about decent pay and benefits. It talks about workers getting quality health care, workers having paid sick leave and family and medical leave. You know, and the thing is, those are pretty basic things that in other lines of work, people sort of take for granted. Well, of course, you're going to get that. Well, if you're a home care worker, you can't take that for granted. And some employers are saying, you know, those are frills or, you know, those are kind of extra things that you can't really expect. Well, I think we ought to be fighting for workers to get those things. I also think um, these technologies that people are learning to use now, and you mentioned remote monitoring, I think we ought to be advocating for those to be available in every county and every managed care organization should know about those things, should be reminding people about those, educating people, the same thing in IRIS. Um, I also think, unfortunately, the workforce crisis is probably going to get worse. You know, COVID probably scared some people away from doing this kind of work. And that means we're going to have to be more creative about workforce issues. And that's not just remote monitoring. I think, you know, we may have to look more at things like, you know, paid roommates who are assisting people and, and getting a rent subsidy, uh, maybe stipends for neighbors, maybe more use of volunteers. Uh, maybe more worker cooperatives, uh, possibly creating local worker registries to help people find workers better. 
maybe more use of college students, more use of undocumented people. I mean, we got to think outside the box because if we don't, uh, there's a lot of people who may theoretically be off the waiting list and they've got a family care plan or an iris plan that looks like it's adequately funded and has an adequate number of hours of service, but they just can't get any workers to fill those hours. So, you know, that's great that in theory, they have an adequately funded plan, but in reality, you know, they really don't. So, the other thing is, um, I really think self-direction comes into play here. Uh, what, I read a really interesting article recently in, in the Boston newspaper where the author was talking about self-direction gives you more control over who's going to come in and out of your house. And if you're nervous about COVID, one of the things you want to have is control over who's going to enter my personal space. And how do I know, you know, that person's, whether that person's been screened, uh, what kind of protocols that person's observing to make sure they don't infect me? Well, self-direction gives you more control over that. So I'm hoping that people recognize the benefits of self-direction in a pandemic and maybe in the world after a pandemic. Thanks. You know, Lynn, you've left us with some really good advice today. I'm taking away that we need to be thinking creatively about the workforce crisis. It's not going away. What are outside the box thinking on that? We need to expand use of technology to increase people's independence, but also as part of the solution to the direct care workforce crisis. And then you just mentioned that we need more awareness about the benefits of self-direction and people being able to take control of their lives during a pandemic and after a pandemic has passed. So any final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with, Lynn? Yeah, you know, obviously some of what's happening in our country right now is discouraging, but I feel like every situation that we're in, there's, op there's opportunities. And I think if we look for them here, there's things we can learn, things we can build on, and maybe make some things better in the future when this thing's over. Well, thanks as always, Lynn, for sharing your wisdom. And thank you to our listeners for listening to the ARC Experience podcast. Uh, Lynn, should we have you back sometime? Would you join us again? Absolutely. I'll be even older then, but I'll, I'll do my best. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much, Lynn. And thank you to our listeners again. Make sure to like, share, and subscribe. Today's episode of the ARC Experience was brought to you by the ARC Wisconsin, the state's oldest advocacy organization for people with intellectual and developmental disabilities and their families. It's funded in part by the Wisconsin Board for People with Developmental Disabilities. Our theme music, called Species, is the property of EY5Z and cannot be copied or distributed without permission. It was produced by Eleanor Cheatham, a composer and artist with autism.